The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We also saw, I think it's fair to say, Haba stumbling a bit um, during trial and sort of tangling with the judge over the procedures for impeaching a witness and putting forward evidence um, and all kinds of things that you'd really hope uh, counsel for a former and perhaps future president would have on lock. So I think it's... As with the uh, New York civil trial, um, sort of an example of plenty of shenanigans going on. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 20th, 2024. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, recorded on January 18th in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio were Quinta Jurassic. Anna Bauer was missing. But Roger Parloff was there, and we discussed where the Section 3 disqualification litigation stands all across the country. And at the Supreme Court, we talked about some amicus briefs. We talked about lack of action from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals on Trump's presidential immunity defense. We talked about a puzzling statement from a few D.C. Circuit judges on a different D.C. Circuit matter involving Twitter and executive privilege. We talked about what Judge Cannon is up to in Florida. And of course, we took audience questions from our material supporters of Zoom. To submit such questions yourself, you should become a material supporter at lawfaremedia.org slash support. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 20th, Trump's Trials and Tribulations, still waiting on the D.C. Circuit. So let's start with uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, because, you know, it's all anyone's talking about these days. Roger, we have briefs due today. Uh, have any of them been filed? Do we? Has anybody had anything to say? I don't think we have Trump's brief yet. We have a lot of amicus briefs. The briefs that are due, the amicus briefs are due, are the ones that are either supporting uh, Trump or are uh, supporting neither party, which means they're clarifying some point of law. And uh, the ones that are supporting the voter challengers will come in another, uh, I think, uh, January 31st. 
does uh, does anyone know that I'm wrong? January 31st, yes. And then the replies will be February 5th, and then the argument is February 8th. And it occurred to me this morning when I was talking to uh, Charlie Sykes um, on the Bulwark podcast that if I were the Supreme Court, I would really want to hear from the Solicitor General on this. Um, have they asked for the views of the Solicitor General? And are we expecting an SG's office brief? I have not seen uh, a request uh, like that uh, uh, on, on the docket Um the, the docket I have is not always complete. Have you seen anything like that, uh, Quinta? I have not, um, for what it's worth, nor have I seen any conversation around that. I know uh, uh, Jack Goldsmith speculated on Twitter about whether or not special counsel Jack Smith would want to weigh in. I haven't seen any indication of that either. Um, mm. It's not clear to me why. <laughs> if, if I no, were Smith, I, I would want to stay as far stay away as, from yeah. this as possible. No. Yeah, exactly. It's mm. true. Although if I were the Solicitor General, I mean, I, this is a matter that obviously affects the executive branch very deeply. And I, it would seem like the Solicitor General might well have things to say on the subject. Oh, the Solicitor General. Yes, I thought you said special counsel, though. Uh, uh, oh, I, I, I certainly meant the Solicitor General. If I, yeah, if oh, I, okay. But there's no, there's no indication of a request for the views of the SG. No. All right. They have everyone else's views. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I think it would be odd for the SG not to weigh in on a matter that bears on who gets to be president and. Uh, what the meaning of a core provision of the 14th Amendment is. Well, we might might want to mention while, while we're on Section 3 that uh, we got a ruling from Maine yesterday. Oh, yes. Let's, so tell us about Maine. Yeah, the uh, you, they have a fast track system there. You remember the uh, Secretary of State, uh, they have an administrative proceeding that begins before her, and she had determined that uh, after a hearing that uh, Trump was disqualified. Um, she followed the reasoning a lot of the Colorado court. And so by yesterday, this, a superior court appealed to a superior court had to uh, the, the superior court had to rule by uh, state law and Justice Michaela Murphy of Kennebec County. They call their superior court judges, justices. She remanded to the secretary of state with instructions to reconsider after uh, the Supreme Court rules. Basically, she she wanted to just uh, stay the case herself and uh, uh, wait till the court ruled. But um, she felt Maine law didn't permit that, but her, it permitted her to do this. Um, she did not... Uh, uh, vacate the ruling. So the, the ruling sort of still exists uh, out there, the disqualification by uh, Bellows is her name. Um, I think Jenna Bellows, but um, it, it's it's apparently stayed. Now, uh, under Maine law, this was supposed to then go to their Supreme Court by uh, January 31st, and they were then supposed to rule. I assume, I, I don't know if uh, the voter challengers are going to try to appeal the stay, the remand ruling to the Supreme Court. I, I sort of doubt it. I think we're beginning to get uh, 
uh, what looks like a little bit of consensus that uh, people are going to wait until the Supreme Court weighs in. And that's what the Oregon Supreme Court also did. Yeah. So I, I would think that the posture of Maine now is about as clear as it is going to be, which is pending the Supreme Court, which is if the Supreme Court affirms Colorado, he will be off the ballot in Maine as well. And if well, it doesn't say that. No, but but I I mean, if you combine the uh, the secretary of state's judgment with an oh, affirmance yes, in yes, Colorado. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it <laughs> would right. be very hard for the yes. main court yes. system to say no, but it that that right. logic doesn't no, you're work quite right. here. But there's no point in trying to preempt the Supreme Court on on this. So uh, it sort of goes into abeyance until we hear from five justices. It seems to me to make a a lot of sense, although it does seem to defy the statutory deadlines in Maine law. That's that's right. But she she said um, there's all these federal constitutional questions of first impression and and uh, it, it would be imprudent for her to weigh in when we're about to get some sort. We're likely to get some sort of definitive answer to some of those questions. So. All right. Any other Section three action? Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, theoretically, you know, there's this uh, administrative proceeding in Massachusetts. There's, we're supposed to get a ruling on January 29th. Uh, there's an administrative proceeding in Illinois. We're supposed to get a ruling on January 30th. I'm sure there are others out there. Uh, those are the ones that, that I know have firm, uh, seemingly firm deadlines. I don't know if... Uh, those are stayable or not in light of the SCOTUS rule. Yeah. And so is is your impression that they will all just back up waiting for the Supreme Court? Or do you think some of them are going to be like, well, we've got to decide this and the Supreme Court will do whatever it does. But we're in the meantime, we're going to keep him on the ballot or throw him off the ballot. Or how is it like to work likely to work procedurally? I think if they have the wiggle room to stay it until the Supreme Court rules, that's what they'll do. Um, some may feel that they just don't have that wiggle room under uh, state law. In addition, just imagine, you know, if you if I assigned you the problem of write a ruling on this question, which has umpteen parts to it and do it by January 31st, uh, wouldn't you rather uh, uh, say, uh, let's hear from the court first. Right. Let's see how yeah. much work we can get the Supreme Court, uh, yeah. how much of my work we can get the U.S. Supreme Court to do. Because this might vanish after that. Right. right. I say this is consistent with my hot potato theory of, of Trump, which is that every institution that has the chance to deal with him desperately wants to fob the issue off on everyone else. And here, I think various state officials and courts have extremely good reason to just kick it to the Supremes and see what they do. Well, especially because the Supreme Court is actually the controlling authority. and it's, so, No, it, it, it's a very good reason. It's right? a good I reason. think that sometimes people... Uh, toss the hot potato with very little reason. But here there's I mean, it is literally their job to to decide this. 
All right. So uh, speaking of courts, who it is literally their job to decide things, it is literally the job of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to have already decided because <laughs> uh, we said by the end of the week last week and we said 48 hours. I think I personally said 48 hours and the D.C. Circuit has no business proving us wrong. Uh, but it seems to have. So, uh, Roger, Quinta, what do we know about what's going on? Oh, we know nothing, uh, but that won't stop us. It never <laughs> has. <laughs> so um, my theory is that uh, uh, Judge uh, Karen LaCraft Henderson is uh, writing a uh, long and irrelevant and baffling concurrence and that that's holding things up. Quinta LaCraft Jurassic, do you have a, a theory? I think that's as good a guess as, as any. I think I also uh, predicted 48 hours, so I will also eat my my crow. But yes, I mean, look, we, we don't know. They've been quiet. We'll find out. All right. There is a subject, however, about which the D.C. Circuit has not been quiet, Speaking of baffling quasi-concurrences, it involves executive privilege. I confess I had a little bit of a hard time making head or tail of this matter uh, that involves Twitter, Trump, and uh, lower court Judge Beryl Howell, who was chief judge at the time. Quinta, what do we know? So this was a, a little bit of a strange one. So I will open just by explaining what specifically we're talking about. And then I'm going to rewind because it, it, as you just hinted, Ben, requires a fair amount of context. Um, so what we got uh, was a ruling from the D.C. Circuit on January 16th um, that was a denial of Twitter's petition for rehearing on Bonk of a ruling that came down from a panel of the DC circuit over the summer concerning a appeal again by Twitter of a contempt order from the district court in this case from judge Beryl Howell then acting as chief judge. We're talking about, so a, a denial from a petition for rehearing on bonk at the DC circuit is nothing new. The DC circuit does not like to hear thing, rehear things on bonk. But this particular one is interesting because there is a not a not a dissent uh, from the denial of rehearing, not a concurrence from the denial of rehearing, but a, a statement, uh, which is something that I have never seen before, uh, from the three Trump appointees on the court: Judge Naomi Rao, um, Greg Katzis, and Justin Walker, along with one Judge Karen LaCraft Henderson. Uh, this statement is written by Judge Rao. Um, sort of objecting maybe to how the courts uh, have handled what they believe is an executive privilege issue at, uh, that has to do with this case. So now that I've said that out, let me back up and uh, uh, sort of record scratch freeze frame, move backward in time, and then I'll, I'll explain what this is about and why it may or may not matter. So all this traces back to some litigation that uh, listeners may recall from over last spring and summer that has to do with a warrant sent by special counsel Jack Smith to Twitter, um, then under the control of Elon Musk, which is relevant, 
uh, for material relating to Trump's Twitter account um, in the course of the January 6th investigation. Uh, Twitter resisted handing over that information. Um, it seems like there was a perhaps some uh, confusion in terms of communication between the government and Twitter over it, which I think probably traces back to the fact that Twitter's legal department was pretty substantially hollowed out after Musk's uh, takeover. All of this back and forth uh, resulted in a court hearing in February. So sorry, I've gotten the timing a little wrong. But last, so last winter, a court hearing um, where the Twitter um, and the special counsel hashed out before Judge Howell um, Twitter's objections to this uh, warrant. Uh, Twitter agreed to hand over some material, then it failed to hand over the material by the deadline that Judge Howell had set. And uh, because she had also uh, gotten both parties to agree to a structure of fines for noncompliance that increased geometrically, uh, Twitter's delay in handing over that material uh, ended up landing them with a fine of uh, $3,500,000. Um, so all of that is the background. The appeal has to do with, so Twitter was essentially appealing this contempt fine along with some other aspects of how Judge Howell handled the case. The DC Circuit dealt with that over the summer. And now we have this uh, appeal uh, for rehearing on Bonk that was denied. What does any of this have to do with executive privilege and why are we talking about it? Great question. Uh, so one of Twitter's arguments before Judge Howell initially was that they didn't want to hand over the material because they could see that there were DMs in the account, direct messages in the account um, that had been sent either to or from President Trump. Um, and that they believed that there might be executive privilege interests in those DMs, um, given that he was president when they were sent or received. Um, they they weren't they hadn't looked at them. They're just sort of the, the data is such that they know that they exist. We have no information about what may be in them. Um, Judge Howell, uh, we now know because of a transcript of the proceedings that was unsealed, was not particularly impressed by this. Uh, didn't take it particularly seriously and ruled that Twitter had to hand over the materials. Anyway, this gets us to the situation with the fine. When Twitter appealed Judge Howell's ruling on contempt and other sort of procedural matters, the uh, the D.C. Circuit, the panel, um, in a ruling by Judge Florence Pan, uh, whose name may be familiar by now, um, didn't really address the executive privilege issue. It comes up, but it's kind of nested within another issue, which is that uh, Twitter is arguing that it has a First Amendment right um, to be able to disclose to President Trump that this information is being sought, um, given that one of the measures that Judge Howell implemented was a non-disclosure order, essentially to prevent the investigation from being interfered with. So the D.C. Circuit and Judge Pan's ruling uh, essentially upholds everything that Howell does, does not touch substantively this executive privilege issue because it's focused on the sort of uh, broader First Amendment question of whether Twitter has a First Amendment right, and it says it does not. Um, this brings us then to the denial uh, for the petition of referee hearing on Bonk and the statement uh, by Judge Rao. So essentially, Rao is zeroing in on this kind of subsidiary argument that has been made by Twitter throughout about whether there is a potential for executive privilege implications of handing over these DMs uh, that were in Trump's account. 
Um, and what she argues is essentially is not necessarily that that Trump should have triumphed in invoking the privilege, but that she he should have been given an opportunity to invoke it before this material was handed over. Um, there are some weird aspects to this. So, for example, we know from previous court filings that the material that Twitter eventually did hand over uh, included 32 direct messages. Um, Judge Rao refers to these as messages from Trump, so messages sent by Trump. With apologies to Judge Rao, I don't see how that can be right. Um, there is no indication elsewhere in any of the reporting or any of the other court filings that these were messages sent by Trump. And because she's saying all of those, we know there are only 32 messages. She says all of those 32 were from him. So in this, in her version of events, Trump is only sending DMs. He's not receiving anything. That just strikes me as a bit odd. Not really the way people use DMs. Exactly. And I think it, that kind of inflects her understanding of the potential privilege implications, because I looked at uh, what Special Counsel Smith had said about the 32 DMs and thought, you know, these could be anyone, right? It could be spam. We don't even know if Trump read them. So all of this, it's its very odd. Um, I've been talking for a while. We can talk more about how it is that the president even could have a privilege in communication sent on a public platform. It's its a bit fuzzy, uh, but that's essentially what, what Judge Rao um, and her three colleagues are saying. Just to be clear, it is not fashioned as a dissent. No, it, it is, is a not, statement. It is not fashioned as a concurrence. Correct. Is it clear how the four of them voted in the on the question before them, which was whether to grant uh, rehearing on Bonk? No. <laughs> we we just have that they have this statement. And it's just, it's not really obvious what is going on here. Winter, is one of the issues that Trump himself, even when he became aware of this situation, never asserted executive privilege? So that's correct. So that's part of what's strange about all of this is that so partly uh, what is what we're what we know um, is that there is an initial decision on the part of Judge Howell to not disclose um, the fact that this information is being sought. Um, and Judge Rao seems to think that there should have been some process by which to kind of flag to Trump or perhaps his representative or or something along those lines to kind of give him an opportunity to weigh in. That said, even after this information did become public that all this had happened, um, at no point did Trump seek to intervene. I would say when the court does something per curiam, which means as the court, and, and this you, is a procurium ruling to be And clear. you don't dissent, then you are presumptively represented by the procurium. And so I guess the question that puzzled me about this is if we are to assume they are not dissenting, because it is not crafted as a dissent, and they are therefore represented by the procurium, why is it not a concurrence? Um, which I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't have an answer for you. It's a very, I mean, it's just strangely postured and 
some of the people involved in it are very eccentric, but some of them, like uh, Judge Katsas, are not um, very conservative, but but a, a a quite normal judge's judge kind of guy. So I'm a little bit just befuddled by how to read it. Roger, do you have thoughts? I don't really. I'm I'm just puzzled by it. All right. We will leave ourselves in a state of puzzlement on this matter and move to the next puzzling feature and creature, which is uh, Judge Eileen Cannon, who uh, has done a few puzzling things um, and been asked to do a few more. Uh, Roger, why don't you bring us up to speed on the antics in South Florida? Yeah, a, a number of things have been going on. We're still uh, laboring over this uh, SEPA Section 4 stage. And remind us what that is. Yeah. So, you know, initially the government was willing to provide about 5,500 pages of classified, not provide, but to make available. You know, they don't turn over the classified information, but make available uh, 5,500 pages. That was mainly the the documents in the 32 counts that uh, Trump is charged with uh, for willfully uh, withholding. They were going to make that available to Trump and to the lawyers for NADA and de Oliveira. And there were objections uh, of different kinds. Uh, and then... Uh, um, uh, she, on her own, Judge Cannon, uh, decided that she couldn't uh, even say yes at that stage. She had to wait until Section 4, the Section 4 stage. The Section 4 stage is when, uh, after the government has conceded that certain things should be made available, it, it, it wants to make some additional discovery available, but those documents... Uh, only in part, because there's ultra sensitive stuff that nobody needs to know. So they want it to be redacted or they want substitutions. Uh, they want uh, the the defendants to be told summaries of what's involved. And normally that stage proceeds uh, ex party. That is, um, the government tells the uh, judge uh, in a sealed proceeding with only the government present, what it wants to do. And then at the same time, um, the defendant tells the judge, likewise, in a sealed ex parte proceeding, what its defenses are. And then the judge tries to make a judgment about whether these redactions will be fair, given what the defenses are. Now, for some perspective, originally, Judge Cannon wanted the government's motion, SEPA Section 4 motion, to be filed on October 10th, and it wanted Trump's reply to be filed the same day, October 10th. There are two ex parte motions, why not? And then a week later, she would hold a hearing if necessary, October 17th. Instead, nothing has gotten decided today, still. And the reason is Trump wants to have an adversarial proceeding. They want to see 
in certain ways the SEPA Section 4 motion and want to be able to contribute and argue about it. They don't say that, you know, they don't say Trump gets to see the motion, but Trump's cleared counsel get to see the motion, um, things like this. She's That's been fully briefed. Incidentally, the same thing was argued in Chutkin's case, and she said, nope, the statute says ex party, that's it. She said, she ruled uh, recently that um, she wanted a an ex party uh, hearing January 31st to discuss this with the government. And uh, she's still postponing deciding, the, and, and she's going to put off deciding the whether this will be an adversary proceeding, wh- whether the Trump will get to see any of SEPA Section 4 until a two-day hearing uh, scheduled in February, February 12th and 13th. Meanwhile, she had Trump file his objections to Section SEPA 4, which he did uh, on the, uh, yesterday. And um, I don't know how he filed objections without seeing um, the motion, uh, but th- that was done under seal. And it puzzled Judge Cannon, who's, who then issued an order saying, did you really mean it's under seal, but it's not ex party? Did you really mean that it's not ex party? And Trump said, yes, it's not ex party because we still haven't told you yet what our defenses are. We want to set, set up a meeting, ex party meeting later to tell you what our defenses are. Anyway, the thing is limping along at at uh, very slowly. Uh, we we won't even have a decision on whether uh, this is ex party or adversarial until sometime after February twelfth and February thirteenth. So uh, that's where that stands. And then wasn't there also there's a Trump motion to compel all kinds of discovery? Yes. Yes. What uh? What's the story with that? That's uh, an important thing that happened uh, two days ago. It's sort of like the the uh, DC case again. Um, he wants to define the prosecution team very very broadly, uh, so that an enormous amount of additional discovery has to be turned over. He, he wants the uh, and again, Chutkin rejected this very quickly. But uh, we'll have to see how Judge Cannon sees it. Um, Members of the prosecution team, as Trump sees it, include uh, the National Archives and Records uh, Administration. That that, that famous prosecutorial office. The CIA, the Defense Department, the National Security Agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, the Department of Energy, the State Department, uh, uh, in the White House, the National Security Council, the White House Counsel's Office, the White House Office of Records Management, in the DOJ, the Office of Legal Counsel, Office of Attorney General, Office of De- Deputy Attorney General, National Security Division, and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida, the, uh, the Special Counsel's Office pertaining to the D.C. case, the Secret Service, the Department of Energy. So, there, uh, there's a lot there. In addition, to give the categories of information they're looking for, and, and, and almost all of this relates to 
theories that there is political bias everywhere, uh, political bias in NARA, political bias, that the Biden administration has been uh, and, and political uh, 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 has been colluding with all of these uh, agencies against Trump. And so any communications with members, relatives or associates of the Biden administration, um, communications between members of the Biden administration and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, including particularly records relating to meetings involving Nathan Wade, who is now mentioned uh, at least three or four times in the motion. Nathan Wade is now a pressure point, and he is going to use that. Um, evidence relating to analytic bias harbored by the Intelligence Committee and, and so on and so forth. There's also, uh, he wants to explore political bias uh, at the intelligence community going back to the 2019 whistleblower complaint relating to his call to Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, he, he thinks that's relevant to this case. He wants to go into misuse of the D.C. grand jury, uh, forcing Evan, Evan Corcoran, his attorney, to testify. Also, there's a, a lot of this motion is redacted, but uh, so I can't tell exactly what portions of it are, uh, are about, but some of it has to do with um, the way Stanley Woodward was treated uh, before the D.C. grand jury. He also wants to have this motion entirely unredacted. So it's clear that, uh, you know, there's a lot of public communications is a big part yeah, yeah, of the purpose yeah. here. But let me ask you, I, one of the things that I couldn't tell, and I haven't read the motion, only the press accounts about it. But one of the things I was curious about is whether the purpose here is actually to create a defense based on some wide Biden administration conspiracy that dates back to the dawn of time in 2019 to, you know, deep state Biden to frame Trump, or whether the goal is here simply to give her an opportunity to order a kind of impossible discovery against a wide range of agencies that, you know, maybe it'll turn something up that is like, you know, Hillary Clinton's email server, or maybe it won't. But what it'll certainly do is it'll turn the agencies in knots and uh, to eat up a lot of time and thereby raise the cost to the executive branch of litigating the case. Is is this a either one or the other, or is it both kind of thing? I think it is both. It would uh, run out the clock if, uh, you know, if, if Trump is going it, it, to, it, it's, it's delay. There's also an investigate the investigators strategy, a sort of a Durham investigation sort of thing, um, which will benefit both uh, his campaign and possibly his defense if he's allowed to bring in, you know, to, to make this claim that that this is all about the Biden administration trying to uh, keep him from becoming president. Uh, I think it's all of those things. So unlike a SEPA ruling by her that's really crazy, there's no obvious interlocutory appeal if she orders some sort of deranged discovery along these lines 
I suppose they could try to mandamus her or they could try to comply, right? I think that that's right. Mandamus is, of course, very difficult, so it would have to be really outrageous, but it could be outrageous. So we'll have to see. Uh, I got to say, I think it's a smart move for the Trump lawyers. It gives her an opportunity to be very helpful in a fashion that's paralytic vis-a-vis the government. It's good public communications that plays well on Fox News and um, allows them to, it's sort of consistent with their campaign themes. You know, who knows? Maybe you get some discovery that's actually interesting. Yeah, it's a very worrisome motion from the perspective of those who would like to see this tried in our lifetimes. <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers, with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep 
acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, speaking of Nathan Wade, and I may take some of this myself, um, do either of you, so we, we are down one Anna Bauer, which is to say uh, uh, our, our major Fulton County expertise, but I think between the three of us, we can, uh, we can handle this. So Fonnie Willis over the weekend uh, responded sort of to the uh, motion about her supposed conflict of interest. She took to the pulpit of her church and uh, announced, I don't think I'm mischaracterizing this, that while she was certainly flawed, people were out to get her. Uh, she also, her office also made clear that uh, they would be filing a response to the, the motion concerning Mr. Wade, but not until February 2nd, which seems like a terribly long time um, to take to respond to a motion that raises a question of your office's integrity. And yes, and as somebody pointed out in the, uh, as Joyce points out in the chat, uh, uh, attributed um, at least some of the action uh, allegations to racism. Uh, so I think we can begin now to uh, uh, address, at least in, in very tentative terms, some of these allegations. Uh, if not, uh, we don't have a clear statement of 
her position regarding what is true, but she rather conspicuously didn't deny the uh, entire gravamen of the thing. And so, Roger, what do you make of it? Is is there anything responsible that we can say at this point? I think so. Um, uh, first, just a, a little uh, more information t- uh, today. Um, Judge uh, McAfee, Scott McAfee uh, ordered a hearing on this question February 15th at 9.30. And he said that Willis must reply by February 2nd. Um, that date is important because on January 31st, there is a hearing in Nathan Wade's divorce case over whether to unseal it. So it might well be that Fonnie Willis this is speculation, may have wanted to see what uh, was being uh, released before um, filing the motion. This motion was filed back on January 8th uh, by Mike Roman's attorney, Ashley Merchant. I guess uh, Anna described it last week. Also, incidentally, if you want to hear that what, what Fonnie Willis said at the church, Anna did a, a nice little thread about the gist of it on her Twitter and thread uh, feeds, where I think her, her handle is at Anna Bauer uh, uh, for both, I think. But the gist of it is he was, Nathan Wade uh, was hired as a special prosecutor, according to the motion. His, his first contract was uh, signed November 1st of 2021. And on November 2nd, 2021, the next day, uh, he filed for divorce. Uh, And the gravamen of the uh, complaint is that uh, they are having a uh, romantic uh, personal relationship. And uh, it implies, uh, it's a 39-page motion, and then uh, there's about 100 pages of documentation uh, from Open Records Act stuff. But Ashley Merchant, the lawyer, says that part of what her motion is based on this sealed divorce file, which she was allowed to see before she realized it was sealed. So those uh, records are not available. Um, So we don't know if there is a personal romantic relationship. That's sort of a uh, only uh, a tiny aspect of this. The, the accusation is that he's being paid very well, Nathan Wade, that he's, I think, $250 an hour, and that effectively he's making more than most of the uh, regular prosecutors uh, in the office. He d- there are two other special prosecutors appointed uh, by Fani, and uh, I don't know how they're being paid. But because of their relationship, the claim is that she is benefiting from some of that money, in effect, because they're a couple. Um, It makes allegations that they've traveled together to Napa Valley, California, to Florida, to the Caribbean. It alleges without proof, without proof uh, at this stage uh, that he bought Uh, tickets for them to go on the Norwegian and Caribbean cruise lines. Um, So the idea is, why would this matter? And I I think the theory, a couple of theories of why this would matter. You want an impartial prosecutor with no stake in the case. 
And in this case, we have 19 defendants, some of which uh, are fairly minor. If you are uh, directing public funds to your boyfriend and sharing the benefits of that, there might be an incentive to have more defendants than necessary and to keep them in the case longer than necessary. I think that would be the theory of how it could impact the case. There are probably others. She also claims that uh, he wasn't appointed in the correct way, uh, that she has to, Fani has to get permission from Fulton County in a way that she didn't. I think it implies that he needs to get approval from the Board of Commissioners. There's already been some uh, pushback from that. The New York Times quoted uh, a Republican prosecutor uh, in Georgia, I think the head of a the prosecutor's organization who was saying he didn't think that was necessary. So that's that's an issue. We'll have to see how that develops um, if if she needed any sort of approval that, that she didn't get. And then, of course, what he's asking for, what she's asking for, or Mike Roman's attorney, Ashley Merchant, is asking for is uh, dismissal of the case. I, I don't understand how that would be possible. She's also asking, however, to disqualify Fani, to disqualify Nathan Wade, and to disqualify the whole office. Uh, those are uh, possibilities if if her premises, uh, if all of her premises turn out to be true. And uh, as you've pointed out, there's, there's no reply yet. We don't even know uh, that a, a romantic relationship exists. We don't know that any money came back to benefit Fani. And I guess the last thing I, before I turn this over, he she implies that, uh, and Fani was very upset about this, that uh, Nathan Wade is sort of underqualified for the position, has never tried a felony RICO case, has never, so far as she knows, file, uh, tried any uh, felony case. So, Again, very unproven. So that's, I think, uh, where we are. So a couple of things uh, about about this that have just struck me as the stories have come out. And the first is that the hourly rate that he is supposedly billing at, which is $250 an hour, is uh, not very high. You know, I, I don't know what he makes as a private practice attorney, but I would be shocked if it were not substantially higher than that. The The brief is laced with this implication that, the, that there's this exorbitant spending. But, you know, $250 an hour, it sounds like a lot of money to a lot of people. But for lawyer billing rates, it's, you know, it's not a it's not an exorbitant rate by any means. What is the purported basis for saying that this is some outrageous amount of money? Well, first, you know, it, it, it's a criminal case in state court. You know, it, it's the comparison would not be to, you know, what Manhattan commercial litigators get. And uh, the what he says is that her salary as D.A., is around uh, two hundred thousand. So all of the special, so all of her ordinary prosecutors are are getting a lot less than that. And the allegation is over three years, 
uh, he has billed, um, I think, around $650,000. And of course, she's getting $200,000 for running the whole office, not just for this case. So you might be right. Maybe it turns out this is, uh, he's taking a pay cut. Um, and and uh, that could well be an argument. But she sort of has to make the case we need a special prosecutor that there's nobody in the office that could do this. Right. And it needs to be him. And it needs to be him. And um, it looks bad. Yeah, it, it, it looks bad. Um, second question. Is there any argument other than assertion that any of the money is kicked back to her? I mean, for example, do we know, is it alleged that when they went up to Napa Valley, she, he was paying for her or she was not paying her own way. You know, it seems to me much worse if you can credibly allege that, you know, the office paid him a lot of money and he spent that money on her than it is if you can say the office paid him a lot of money and they did things together. Yeah, there is zero documentation of that. In the, the, it definitely implies, you know, money is fungible and they took a vacation together and that. I believe it does say, it, it does allege there was something about those tickets to the, on the, on the cruise lines that he paid for them. I don't know if they, if she's claiming she can tell what account that came from, but, you know, when you're, a, say, a Supreme Court justice and you're supposed to have a financial disclosure, you're supposed to disclose what your wife makes, too, because. Wait, so wait, who paid for her recreational vehicle? Who paid for her recreation? The, the big shiny RV that she. Oh, sorry. That was Clarence Thomas. No, um, <laughs> yeah. But it is sort of assumed that certainly if you're a couple, if you're a married couple, you're providing for one another. And if you're a romantic couple, it's, it doesn't look great. All right. So state of play before we move on, she's going to respond in a formal way. February 2nd, uh, judge is going to hold a hearing February 15th. We will have a lot more clarity at that point. Is that? That's right. And, and again, let's emphasize again, hearing myself speak, I, I want to say, we don't know anything yet. I mean, all of these allegations, they might be false. She hasn't responded. And the second factor is, I'm not Anna Bauer. You know, she <laughs> knows what she's talking about. I don't read, you know, this isn't my thing. It's okay. And, you're doing a, you're doing a <laughs> fairly good job of impersonating uh, uh, Anna okay. Bauer. And, and I imagine everyone's quite disappointed that <laughs> I'm taking Anna's place here. Some people are probably despondent that <laughs> it's um, just me here. But um, anyway, this is uh, all we know at this. That's all I know at this point. All right. Speaking of things that are a little bit outside our jurisdiction, but are close enough in that we're going to sweep them in for purposes of this conversation, Eugene Carroll, uh, outside our jurisdiction, because it's not really a national security matter. That said, it's Trump litigation, it's ongoing, and it would be kind of conspicuous not to mention it at all. So Quinta, what's going on with Eugene Carroll? 
So today and yesterday, we've had uh, proceedings in the second defamation trial uh, brought by Carroll against Trump. Um, so the first defamation trial, uh, listeners may recall, ended up with a finding that uh, in civil court, I should emphasize, that Trump sexually abused Carol um, and that he defamed her and he has put uh, $5 million on bond with the court while the, the rest of this proceeding plays out. There, She is now bringing a second case against him because he defamed her. I can't recall whether it was in the middle of or following the previous trial. I mean, there might have added a, 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 a count, but this is when he was president. And so this was delayed while they argued uh, various, you know, Westfall Act and and that's and, right. Apologies, yes. I'm, so I'm getting confused. This is the second trial, <laughs> right. but they call it Carol One because right, it was right. filed first. Yes, apologies, I'm I'm getting confused because there are too many of them. So there will be a second trial in Carol Two. I think if I'm getting my numbering right, uh, but yeah, that that it's kind of the the. Uh, magical, expanding, self-perpetuating defamation litigation, uh, because Trump also, during the proceedings yesterday, was posting on Truth Social, um, or someone was posting from his his account, um, again, calling Carol a liar. Um, so he's now done this again and again and again. Um, there's a variety of cases um, against him. Um, and what we've seen, I think, in the last two days is that his litigation strategy seems to be essentially annoying the judge as much as possible. So this is a case in federal court. And uh, his counsel, Alina Haba, her approach really just seemed to be to be as abrasive as possible, frankly. Clearly uh, irritating Judge Lewis Kaplan. Trump himself caused a disruption. At one point, Judge Kaplan said he would throw him out of the courtroom if he didn't stop. Um, so it, it seems like Trump has made the calculation that kind of raising a ruckus is the move here, I assume for PR reasons, since it's certainly not going to help him in court. We also saw, I think it's fair to say, Haba stumbling a bit um, during trial and sort of tangling with the judge over the procedures for impeaching a witness and putting forward evidence um, and all kinds of things that you'd really hope uh, counsel for a former and perhaps future president would have on lock. So I think it's, as with the uh, New York civil trial, um, sort of an example of plenty of shenanigans going on. All right. We are going to go to audience questions. We're going to start with Josh, who asks, in Trump's D.C. case in Chutkin's court, could Trump's team try an insanity defense? They seem to be throwing any and everything at the wall, and his supporters don't seem to care about any of it. I will uh, take a crack at this, uh, which is at a basic level, they won't do it. He won't let them. I do think a some kind of diminished capacity defense wouldn't be the craziest if you had a compliant client would not be the most insane uh no pun intended uh approach that said uh he won't let them do it and more importantly the standards uh for 
establishing it are really, really high. And he's uh, a sufficiently high functioning human being uh, that like it's not the kind of defense that ever prevails when you use a, a sort of uh, the the insanity species of defense. You, you know, it, they tend to uh, tend to work best when you're dealing with uh, either, you know, florid delusional systems where you can really say this is somebody who believes that, you know, cats are flying through the air and attacking him or uh, occasionally in situations like uh, Lorena Bobbitt, where you have uh, a very appealing defendant for some reason and a very, uh, but they're, they're not situations where somebody brings out a crowd and, you know, is functioning at the highest levels of American government. You're not going to be able to establish uh, the degree of disconnection from reality that is not the formal legal standard, which is based on knowing the difference between right and wrong, but is the functional thing that persuades juries in this regard. So that's my answer. Roger, Quinta, what do you think? I think that's right. The, the, uh, there are ways to try to convey to the jury even that, well, you know, He's a quirky guy, you know. He's an eccentric guy, you know. He's a uh, uh, this is the way he is. He's he's charming, you know. It's all out in the open, and you know uh, the Republican Party has bought this, you know. Yeah, he's he lies a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know he he abuses women. He's uh, probably a criminal. Yeah, it's, he's but he's charming, and they will try to do that with the jury. But it won't be an insanity defense. He won't permit that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, but I do think if you can convince a juror that there's a soft version of it, which isn't crafted as an insanity defense, it's crafted as a he's a quirky guy, but it's that, you know, he really believed this stuff. And if you, you know, that's, it may seem crazy to you. Look, it seems crazy to me, but he really believed it. He honestly believed uh, all this stuff. And so he doesn't really have the, the criminal intent necessary to uh, uh, convict. That's an argument they're going to make. And it is not formally an insanity defense, which is an affirmative defense you have to prove. But it is kind of like inflected by a diminished capacity argument. And it's based around the same idea, which is that, hey, the criminal intent is an element of the offense. If you can convince people that he's not capable of forming the requisite criminal intent, you know, the glove fits and you have to acquit. So, all right, Susan asks, Trump's team uses so much stalling and so many opportunities seem available at every juncture to introduce delays. Do you think any ruling by the end of March is possible? Quinta, what do you think? End of March? Um, I guess I'm, I'm not sure what case specifically this is I think is she in. means any case. I mean, end of March, definitely not. Um, I think the DC, for example, DC trial starting, it was meant to start at the beginning of March and that is not happening. And it gets pushed back a little farther every day that the DC circuit decides not to rule. So we're, we're definitely in delay land. I think each of the cases are on kind of a different delay. 
the DC case, I think Judge Chutkin really wants to get moving as quickly as possible. Um, once that's handed back to her in uh, South Florida, it seems like Judge Cannon would be happy to delay as as long as possible. <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll see what the timing looks like. You know, keep an eye on New York because that's a case that has a late March trials date that could go forward if the New York case does not go forward in uh, the beginning of March. And so I don't think you're going to have a ruling or a verdict by the end of March, but you could have something not too long after that. John Bordeaux, lovely to see your uh, your your name on the chat on, on the Q&A. The floor is yours, sir. Delighted to be here. Thank you again um, for doing all this. This is fantastic. I appreciate you people. You're lovely people. I'll point out to people watching that Clint's pillow seems to be screaming. I hope that's not uh, an overt message. Um, my question is that Ms. Haba in New York appears to not understand things like rules of evidence or courtroom procedure. Does her defendant have an avenue towards incompetent counsel defense on appeal? So the uh, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel is a creature of criminal cases, not uh, civil cases. You cannot plead what's called IAC uh, as a way of getting a civil verdict overturned, I don't think. The other thing is that he had other lawyers in this case and he drove them all away. And there's no, you know, there's no right to court appointed counsel in civil matters. And so if you make yourself completely intolerable to your lawyers so that nobody will represent you, you may actually suffer consequences of that in litigation. And there's no, you know, there's no, the state doesn't have to provide you a competent lawyer like it does in, in criminal matters. Your real lips to God's ears. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Roger, and any, uh, I leave anything out on that one? No, I agree there. You know, there is, uh, you know, theoretically you can sue uh, for um, malpractice. That would be, you would sue the, he would sue her for malpractice. Uh, but I, I don't see how, how he could do that. If what I I haven't seen her performance in court, I uh, I'm just uh, yeah. It has by all by all Twitter accounts not been stellar. <laughs> okay. All right. Nathan asks: Assuming DOJ may weigh in somehow on the Supreme Court's review of Trump's appeal to the Colorado District and Supreme Court decisions, that it may, after ruling on broader questions, remand the case down to Judge Chutkin's court. That seems improbable, or the appropriate federal district court for Colorado to try the evidence for and against the question, perhaps most in dispute, did Trump engage in the constitutional crime of insurrection against the United States? Okay, so there are a bunch of things in here that I think are uh, incorrect as a matter of assumption. Uh, Roger, do you want to take this or Quinta, do you want to take this or should I? I'll, I'll try. Uh, that wouldn't happen. Um, they they aren't going to send this back to a different court. They at least that's that's not an existing uh, remedy available. I mean, you know what the Supreme Court does, uh, it can do. But um, you know, the it can. There's plenty of variables uh, out there, but that isn't one of them. It will either 
uh, affirm uh, what the Colorado court did, in which case we can argue about whether it binds anyone else except the Colorado court, or they will overturn it. And depending on the grounds they use, that could end all of this or not. And uh, and in fact, there was one brief filed today by uh, Akila Mar, who is a towering constitutional scholar, uh, but also uh, someone with it's very different, difficult to fairly summarize whatever he thinks about anything, because it's very uh, nuanced and balanced and confusing, which is not so great for writing briefs. Yeah. Uh, uh, he wrote a very interesting brief, uh, which I haven't finished. And he says, of course, Section 3 applies to presidents. And uh, of course, in effect, it's self-executing. And of course, insurrection can be based on words as well as conduct or in lieu of conduct. But he sort of implies, even if it upholds what Colorado did, he doesn't seem to think the the Supreme Court gets the last word here. It's still a live question for Congress. And uh, anyway, I haven't read the whole thing. Anyway, there's tremendous confusion. We have to wait to see what the Supreme Court says, but it won't send it back down to Chutkin. All right. Jim Brennan asks, many commentaries regarding the 14th Amendment seem to indicate that a constitutional crisis should be avoided by finding some credible off-ramp for the Supreme Court. It seems to me that we have been in a constitutional crisis since at least January 6th. My question is, wouldn't it be better to confront this crisis sooner rather than later? That is, find that Trump is not qualified now, many months before the election. Trump will claim all types of conspiracy regarding such a finding, but he's going to do the same thing if he loses the election in November 2024 anyway. Quinta, you're our resident expert on constitutional crises. What do you make of this? Is it better to resolve it well in advance so that he has time for the temper tantrum? Or is it better to catch him off guard shortly before before D-Day? Yeah, I'm in the was resolve it well in advance here. The question of what a constitutional crisis is is a really complicated one. There's, uh, I believe I'm I'm drawing on Keith Whittington's work here in dividing between sort of two different kinds. One is a, a crisis where the Constitution tells you what to do, but nobody does it, or uh, the person in power doesn't do it. And the other is where the Constitution doesn't tell you what to do. Um, And you can imagine either scenario in this instance. Um, I'll actually point to another amicus brief that was filed today by uh, Ned Foley, Rick Hassan, and Ben Ginsburg, um, all of whom are uh, very highly regarded election law scholars, Ginsburg having for a long time litigated on behalf of the Republican Party in election matters, although he uh, moved away from that recently, um, essentially saying like, not weighing in on the merits of what the court should do, but saying that the court needs to address this issue on the merits. Is he disqualified or isn't he? No, you know, cutesy procedural measures. No, oh, there wasn't, you know, due process. So Colorado needs to go back and do it again. None of that. Um, No, you know, 
just that that it really needs to cut to the heart of the matter so that we have an answer. Because you can imagine a kind of nightmare scenario where let's say the court kind of hems and haws, we don't get a clear answer on the question. Uh, let's say just to reach the worst possible world, you somehow end up in a scenario where uh, Trump wins a majority of the Electoral College. You then go to uh, Congress on January 6, 2025, and then Democratic members of Congress say under uh, the Electoral Count Act and the Electoral Count Reform Act, we think that we have an obligation to prevent this person from serving as president. Our reading of the 14th Amendment is that we have a duty to enforce the fact that this person is disqualified. Then what do you do? Um, I think that there's that that's kind of like the the nightmare. It's not a very good situation. I think that that is a more of a crisis where the Constitution doesn't tell you what to do, um, where different actors have different understandings of their own constitutional obligations. Um, and you can end up in just a very, very nerve-wracking situation and one that is deeply uncomfortable uh, for everybody involved. So I, I am also of the view that the court needs to rip off the Band-Aid and just deal with this um, one way or the other. I will say that I do think there is going to be a temptation to kind of rule that Trump is not disqualified because that is the kind of way to deal with this issue once and for all. Uh, because given the decentralized nature of election administration, uh, a ruling that Trump is disqualified would likely have to be hashed out kind of in not exactly state by state, but sort of state by state. There would be a lot of litigation that would follow. Um, and so it's kind of less clean. I still think that they should just do it and be legends. But Either way, I think an answer on the merits is really important. All right. Auntie, the floor is yours. Thank you. So this is a tad frivolous, but uh, what is the current SCIF situation related to the documents case? Uh, do we actually know if uh, Trump and NATO have access to a functional SCIF or not? Thank you. Uh, well, he certainly has access to one or two, actually, in the Miami area which is not that close to uh, Mar-a-Lago. We finally found out that he lost uh, the motion to have a skiff put into Mar-a-Lago or, or put back into Scar Mar-a-Lago or put very near to Mar-a-Lago. Judge Cannon hadn't uh, said that expressly, but in a subsequent motion, in a footnote, she admitted that she had ruled against him on that. All right. Penultimate question from Jeff. Roger, Quinta, I want both of you on this. What is the over under on a billion dollars punitive in punitive damages for Trump in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case? Do you take the over or the under? I, I don't know enough about the relevant law to have a real sense of this. I would say I don't think he's endearing himself to the jury. Um, so perhaps the, the damage just climbs a little higher every time he has an outburst. I don't know. A ruling like that, although possible, is um, would be short-lived. Um, I think she's asking for $10 million, and I don't know if she's asking for that as compensatory or um, uh, punitive, but it's very hard to get more than three to one uh, and uh, hard to get 
two to one. Uh, above that, uh, there, the, the Supreme Court has said there are due process limits. Assuming New York doesn't have its own cap, which it might. It's a fun question, but the actual answer is under and well under because you're if you you know you have a ten million dollar compensatory damages. There's no way that will legitimately produce more than say thirty or forty million in in punitive damages. But by the way, a thirty million dollar punitive damage award. That would be a heck of a, a of, of a thing. So don't inflate your expectations so high that you don't notice a big deal when it happens. All right, Nathaniel, you get the last question today. Good morning from uh, Australia. Friday morning in Australia. Thank you all. Uh, my question relates to interpreting the eligibility question in section in section three of the Fourteenth Amendment in light of Congress's power to overturn the disability. I'm imagining a situation where. SCOTUS rules that Trump is ineligible around Super Tuesday. He's struck quickly from the primary and general election ballots. And in Colorado and other states follow suit or follow their, that example, before Congress has even had an opportunity practically to vote to remove the disability. I mean, the fact that they wouldn't actually in this circumstance is irrelevant to the question. But if that would be the case, to ensure Congress's authority is practically exercisable, mightn't SCOTUS conclude that Trump is eligible to run for president, but not eligible to sit as president and leave it to Congress after the election to decide on whether or not to lift his disability? Thank you. So great question. I have a couple thoughts on this. I'm sure, Roger, you do as well. Uh, and I suspect Quinta might too. So why don't the two of you go first and I will uh, follow up. So this has been raised in various ways. Uh, Trump raises it pretty directly in his brief. A couple problems. One is it kicks the can down the road and you get a constitutional crisis you, it just later. If he's elected and then then we don't know is he disqualified who we still don't know who who has the power to decide that the way this comes up the, I think I explained this once earlier you have situations where somebody wants to be on the ballot and he's not a resident of, of the state and so the quite and somebody sues to keep him out and says you have to be a resident to run. To be to be a U.S. senator from the state, and he says, "Well, I'm not now, but I will be by the time my term begins." And courts have ruled in favor of that and said, "Yeah, okay, uh, that's true." And and so by analogy, you could say, "Well, maybe both both houses of Congress will vote by a two thirds margin to lift this disability between now and election day, um, now and excuse me, January twentieth, twenty twenty five, but." It's not really realistic. Um, it, it, you have a lot more control over whether you move to a state than than whether you can convince two thirds of both houses to lift a disability. And and furthermore, you know, we can take judicial notice. The people in Congress know about these suits going on. They could lift the disability today. That's and, the that's the key point. Yeah, the premise and, of the question's wrong. Actually, Congress could act right now. And relieve whatever disability may exist, and and maybe uh, you know somebody should introduce a bill to that effect. Uh, it would be interesting to see how various people vote, uh, because if, if, to to vote for it would be sort of to admit that he, 
you know, is disqualified. So. All right. Quinta, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I just say so there there is an a textual argument based on the text of the 14th Amendment that the uh it prohibits holding office but not running for office precisely for this reason um and the National Republican Senatorial Committee uh filed a amicus brief I believe with the Supreme Court um or with the Colorado Supreme Court uh making exactly this argument um, I think it's a little too cute for more or less the reasons that we've set out here, but it is potentially on the table. Brenda, before we end today's uh, session, do you want to resolve the question that has been roiling the chat about your pillow? Uh, what What is the question? Is your pillow screaming? Oh, yeah. Or, it's or a, is it sighing with satisfaction? No, it's a it's an infinite scream pillow. Yeah, so infinite scream is... A great Twitter feed from back when I was on Twitter. Whatever. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> oh, no. You could tweet at it, and whatever you tweeted at it, it would shout back, ah! And it was very satisfying. All right. We are going to leave it there. Quinta, Roger, thank you both for joining us. We will be back next week. We will have briefs. We will have probably a D.C. Circuit ruling. Uh, maybe uh, we will have antics from South Florida and from from Georgia. It's going to be a blast. Until then, thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the great Anna Hickey. Folks, I say it every time, and some of you still haven't listened, you need to become a material supporter of Lawfare. Because if you do, you can join the Zoom conversation, you can participate in the chat, you can even join the 24 people who are right now watching me record this outro for you. Yes, there are 24 material supporters of Lawfare who love Lawfare so much, they hang around to watch me record the intro and outro. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patia, who has better sense than to watch me record this intro and outro. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.